I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest. A Haunting in Venice kicks off the spooky season edition. It's Wednesday, September 20th, 2023. On today's show, Kenneth Branagh returns as Detective Hercule Poirot in A Haunting in Venice, the Agatha Christie-derived murder mystery. Also stars Tina Fey and Michelle Yeoh and uh, The City of Venice, let's not forget. And then Jan Wenner, the founder of Rolling Stone magazine, managed to disgrace himself seven ways from Sunday in a recent New York Times interview. And finally, Naomi Klein, author of Shock Doctrine, No Logo, has written a new book about being repeatedly confused with Naomi Wolf, author of The Beauty Myth, and now something one hates to say it, but I think it's true, and uh, Naomi Klein herself says it, something of a public embarrassment. Her new book is a meditation on selfhood in the age of social media and doppelgangers. Joining me today is June Thomas, who's the co-host of The Working Podcast and author of a forthcoming book. June is also A-O- an AOFOP, an AOFOP, among the oldest friends of the program. <laughs> Original OG FOP, OGFOP, you're an OGFOP. Uh, All right, awesome. You're, you're a very, very close friend of the program. Let's put it that way. Junior, working on a book. Can you uh, give us an update? Absolutely. My book is called A Place of Our Own, Six Spaces That Shaped Queer Women's Culture, and it'll be out next May. Uh, we're very excited to discuss that uh, next May. And joining me in the meantime is Dana Stevens, the film critic of Slate.com. Dana, hey, how's it going? Hello, how are you? So happy to have you on, June. Thank you so much. A Haunting in Venice is based on the 1969 Agatha Christie mystery. It continues Kenneth Branagh's run as Hercule Poirot. He also directs. Uh, Poirot is the Belgian detective. He's now in a Venetian palazzo owned by Rowena Drake, a beautiful opera singer who retired from singing and the world after her daughter's suicide. She's brought in a world-famous medium named Joyce Reynolds, played by Michelle Yeoh, to communicate with her lost daughter and intends to hold a seance that includes renowned guests, one of whom is Poirot, and another of whom is his old friend, the mystery writer Ariadna Oliver. So just let's get this straight. Reynolds is there, played by Yeoh, is there to help Drake talk to her dead daughter. Poirot is there to expose Reynolds as a fraud. And Oliver, played by Tina Fey, is there to get juicy material for a new novel. What could go wrong? As I said, the movie's directed. <laughs> thank you. But as I said, the movie's directed by Kenneth Branagh. It also stars uh, Tina Fey and Michelle Yeoh. In the clip we're about to hear, Detective Poirot, played by Branagh, explains why he doesn't believe in ghosts. You'll also hear the voice of Michelle Yeoh, who plays the spiritual medium. Let's uh, let's have a listen. I must tell you, madame, I have been all my life uncharmed by your kind. My kind? Opportunists to prey on the vulnerable, no? You don't believe in the soul's endurance after death? I have lost my faith. How sad for you. Yes, it is most sad. The truth is sad. Please understand, madame, I would welcome with open arms any honest sign of devil or demon or ghost. For if there is a ghost, there is a soul. If there is a soul, there is a God who made it. And if we have God, we have everything, meaning, order, justice. But I have seen too much of the world, countless crimes, two wars, the bitter evil of human indifference. And I conclude, no, no God, no ghosts. Dana, this is, uh, it's, talky it's 
creepy. It's a little jump scary. It's a little campy. It seems, correct me if I'm wrong, it does seem to me that this franchise with Branagh as Hercule Poirot is maybe responding a little bit now to Knives Out, the popularity of Knives Out. This seemed to have a little more crackle to it than um, than the previous installments. What did you make of it? I mean, I wish that it actually resembled what's going on in that clip a little bit more. I think um, Michelle Yeoh's character is one of the more interesting, the medium, possibly grifting medium that she plays. Uh, but she, there, it's really false advertising to say that Michelle Yeoh is in this movie because as I put together, she's in basically one extended scene. Um, and most of the movie, I also feel like, doesn't have the philosophical quality of that exchange between them. I mean, there is a little bit about, you know, this being this post-war, it takes place in 1947, uh, this post-war moment of of disillusionment and kind of nihilism and the question of, you know, what it means to believe in God or the afterlife or any sort of supernatural world, which Hercule Poirot clearly doesn't. But really, the movie doesn't come down to being about that. What this movie feels like to me is kind of the opposite of a, a more modernized, um, you know, Ryan Johnson style whodunit. It's, I feel like Kenneth Branagh's really leaning in to the creakiness of this construct. And people, to be fair, are responding to it. Both of his Agatha Christie installments have done well so far, including, you know, the second one, Death on the Nile, which was released under less than auspicious circumstances, um, still managed to, you know, get good box office and good streaming overall. And people like these movies and respond to them. So I think if you're an Agatha Christie nut and you like, as you say, Steve, somewhat kitschy, campy, creaky, old-fashioned whodunit mysteries, you might respond to this movie. I really did not enjoy it for the same reason I didn't enjoy the first one. Um, Murder on the Orient Express. I haven't seen the middle one, Death on the Nile, uh, which is that I think it's really over-directed. I really like Bronagh better as an actor than I do as a director. And there's so much mannerism in the way he frames things. He loves a fisheye lens for no reason whatsoever. There are tons and tons of scenes of people just like walking up a flight of stairs, doing something completely not, I don't know, psychedelic or whatever kind of situation <laughs> you would normally fish eye a lens for. And yet, you know, we have to see them in that sort of goldfish bowl style, or there's tons and tons of Dutch angles, right? Those very extreme uh, high or low or slanted angles that you usually, a director will use, Orson Welles used them a lot to sort of make something look psychologically off kilter. But we get it. This is about you know, Venetian ghosts haunting a child's party. Like, obviously, it's gothic enough with the, with the canted angles. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, I found this movie just a little too much. And also, this also goes, I think, to the directing problem. He has a lot of wonderful actors, really fun, interesting casting in some of these parts. But a great director makes all the actors feel like they're in the same movie. <laughs> and I don't think that... Either in in the Orient Express film, which in which Michelle Pfeiffer's performance, as I remember, was the standout, or in this one, does it feel like all the actors are in the same movie? I, I think Tina Fey feels really wrong <laughs> as the part she's playing and doesn't seem to match in tone with the rest of the movie. Maybe that's all deliberate and this is supposed to be a postmodern mishmash or something, but I just found it a somewhat dull mishmash. That sounds very negative. I will say a couple nice things about the movie. Venice looks absolutely gorgeous and you get a lot of armchair tourism, especially at the beginning and end. You could fall asleep for the middle hour of this movie (laughs) and still see all of the best Venice stuff because it's basically, you know, before he goes into this dark mansion where almost everything takes place and it is one of those closed mansion kind of movies um, is the only time you see the outside world, but the outside world looks incredible. 
Hmm. June, I'm curious what you made of this and and if you would maybe if you you know tell us if you have any history with the underlying uh, IP. Oh, absolutely. So I have watched every one of the ITV. People often say the BBC versions. It was not the BBC. It was commercial television. But the British TV versions of Poirot and Miss Marple, I would say probably a dozen times and not be lying. Um <laughs> It, it is the sort of it's the go-to fare for our home, and I have to say, as much as this particular one, I did not like. But I do think that you know, Branagh is using his mustache to try to distinguish himself from those other ones in a way that just isn't so. This is really just another standard version of the you know the the Agatha Christie Poirot. Uh, you know, TV show, you have the all-star ensemble cast, which is, you know, a gift to a TV producer. Uh, you can have these big names that they just have to commit for however many days it takes. Uh, you have the Christie story, which is a good story. You have these great characters who are very uh, familiar and very reassuring and, and, you know, put the world to rights. You have... You know, in this case, as as Dana was saying, beautiful scenery that he really does show off very well in the images of Venice. But then this isn't a particularly interesting mystery. And then he spoils it completely by adding sort of second rate horror. I mean, it, it. I don't watch horror movies, so, you know, it kind of made me jump a little bit. But I don't think it's necessary and I don't think it's going to work. Like if you're trying to expand your customer base, I just can't imagine any horror heads, you know, committing to go see a Agatha Christie movie. It's still like your grandma's movie. And I speak as someone who's old enough to be someone's grandma. You know, it's your it's your grandma's IP. And I just don't think that it's going to bring in those horror heads. So it's like it's not a very good Poirot. It's not a very good Christie, and it's what I assume must be a very mediocre horror movie. So between the two things, eh, not I mean. Yeah, not and not a very good Knives Out. That all that said, and I don't disagree with anything um, you two have said. I still, I thought this one got off to a smashing start. I did think that the first ten minutes of setup were beautifully delivered. Um, his reason for being in Venice, the moment in his career, as you say, Dana, he's refusing his own calling as a detective in ways that I thought were sort of tartly and economically delivered um, and kind of fun and funny. Um, Into his universe comes Tina Fey. Here, I disagree with you completely, Dana. I really liked Tina Fey and I liked her character in this movie. That to me was the central relationship in some sense. Um, Very quickly, the other thing I really liked about the movie is what I loved as a very young kid about Agatha Christie books is their very distinctive combination of comfort and unease. You have the comfort of the tiny English manor house melodrama with stock characters uh, in a opulent setting and into which comes this this deep sense of unease that there's been a murder and probably will be another one. Uh, and then into this comes this very un-English figure, this kind of comically, you know, Belgique figure who comes in um, to set the universe right. Uh, I thought what was cool about this one was how they took the setting and made itself a source of unease. It's actually 
it is a sealed off little universe in some sense, but in another sense, it's quite porous. There's water coming in continually. Water plays a very interesting, insinuating, uh, and somewhat destabilizing role in the look and feel of the movie. Um, it's gothic. It's overdone. Um, where it began to lose me is that you you then have to fan service uh, Agatha Christie fans. There's no way to keep this machinery revving without it. And at the end, what that means is sudden exposition about a super extended secret backstories that explain the presence of each one of these people, why they have a plausible motive. Um, all of that felt suddenly very creaky and mechanical, rushed, uh, expository, and kind of unatmospheric. Um, and then, I, I don't know, at the end, Dana, my big problem is, and maybe I'm just no longer a credulous 11-year-old, but to me, Agatha Christie always delivered that, holy shit, that's who did it, how, what they did, huh? And in this one, it, that fell flat in a way, and that was, that was too bad. But by and large, you know what? You know what the most important fact of this movie is? One hour, 42 minutes. Yes, yes. <laughs> Amen. You know, I have to take issue with you there, uh, Stephen, because I think, yes, in this kind of movie, it is good to have the Agatha Christie fan service. And I just didn't find that here. You know, mm. it, this actually isn't Poirot. Poirot, when he was in his retirement days, was very troubled. He was actually also in terrible pain that isn't visible here. You know, Branagh's Poirot is much more of an action man than the other versions of the detective, I think. But uh, and, and they took liberties with Ariadne Oliver, in a way that like is fine and I also enjoyed Tina Fey but it, you know like so you've actually undermined that and then I agree with you that there wasn't the reveal there wasn't the tada because they first of all it's not a terribly you know it's minor it's minor Christie but also they'd gummed it all up with all that second rate mm -hmm. horror stuff and so I just yep. think it you couldn't do that that fan service and also there's something that I think ultimately makes Poirot likable uh, and somebody you want to spend time with which is that he is often abused he's very um he's very full of himself he's very arrogant he's he thinks he's the smartest person in the world and he may be but also he's constantly uh being talked down to he's being you know treated like uh, an idiot child because he's a foreigner and because he has an accent and that aspect is very hard to pull off when you are in, uh, you know, an international place that is not Britain, where yes, he's a foreigner, but so is everybody else. You know, so that element is missing. So I I felt that for the Christie heads, they're going to be disappointed. And, and it seemed inevitable with this structure. Yeah, I appreciate hearing that background, June. I mean, I can only speak as a non-Agatha Christie nut. And I think ultimately, Steve, what you say is kind of the best thing about the movie. It's under two hours long. It's a solid piece of old-fashioned entertainment. It is sort of a movie to see with Grandma at the mall over the weekend. But there's nothing wrong with that. We need those kinds of movies, too. Yeah, here, here. Okay, it's A Haunting in Venice. Uh, it's in theaters right now. Check it out. Let's uh, Let's move on. All right, this is the moment in our podcast where we typically discuss business. Dana, what uh, what do we have? 
Stephen, we have just one item of business this week. That is to tell our beloved listeners about today's Slate Plus segment. This week, June, Stephen, and I are going to be talking about cleaning, namely cleaning our apartments and how we make that task more enjoyable via listening. The New York Times recently ran a piece about the benefits of making a playlist for cleaning your apartment, and they actually suggested a playlist, which we'll discuss. Uh, but we're going to talk about what we do while we clean. Do we listen to music? Do we listen to podcasts? What other tricks and hacks we have to make the daily drudgery of cleaning go a little faster. If you're a Slate Plus member, you'll hear that segment at the end of this show. And if you're not a Slate Plus member, you can become one by signing up at slate.com slash culture plus. In exchange for your membership dollars, you get ad-free podcasts, you get bonus content like the segment I just described, and best of all, you get unlimited access to all of the writing and all of the podcasts on slate.com. When you're a Slate Plus member, you are supporting this magazine, our work, and the work of all our beloved colleagues. These memberships are really important for Slate, so please sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Once again, that's slate.com slash culture plus. All right, onward. All right, well, Jan Wenner is the founder and has served for most of its history as the editor-in-chief of Rolling Stone magazine. He recently came out with a book called The Masters, and it's a series of interviews. Its subtitle is Conversations with Bono, Dylan, Garcia, Jagger, Lennon, Springsteen, and Townsend. You might notice, as an interviewer from the New York Times did, that these are all white men. When, in the course of the interview, Jan Lenner was asked about this, his answers were so gobsmackingly stupid, uh, prejudicial, uh, misogynist, and racist that Within, I believe, about 24 hours, he was removed from the foundation board of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I mean, he's effectively one of its founders and leading lights, and uh, they have disassociated themselves um, pretty uh, curtly from him and with a very short statement. But um, as I said, the, you know, why no Curtis Mayfield? Why no um, Marvin Gaye? Why no Joni Mitchell? On and on and on. His answers were preposterous. Then after the fact, it, on the page, they were preposterous. After the fact, it turned out that there was an audio recording of the interview that's been posted by the Times. Why don't we listen to a choice snippet? Insofar as the women, I mean, there were just none of them were as articulate enough on this intellectual level. Oh, stop it. You can't say that. You're, you're telling you, me Joni Mitchell is not articulate enough on no, an no, intellectual? No, 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 what no, do you no, mean? No, no. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. I'll let you rephrase that. All right. Thank you. Uh, None of them, I thought, could get to <clears throat> the, I mean, Joni Mitchell, yes. I mean, I mean, but let me just say, it's, it's not that they're not creative geniuses. It's not that they're inarticulate, although, go have a deep conversation with Grace Slick or Janice, please be my guest, or Cass, Elliot, wonderful person, you know? Joni was not a philosopher of rock and roll. She didn't, in my mind, meet that test, not by her work, not by other interviews she did. Not a philosopher of rock and roll. I mean, there's kind of a lot to unpack there, I guess, um, beginning with like what kind of weird definition of quote-unquote philosopher, self-serving definition of philosopher of rock and roll he's clearly working off of here. Dana, I, I'm very eager to hear your uh, reaction to this interview. Yeah, I mean, even before Winner got kicked off the, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame board, just when this, this piece went up, this Q&A with David Marchese the other day, the thing that struck me, which is even more striking hearing the audio itself, 
is the doubling down. It's just, it, yeah. it really surprises me that Jan Wenner, like somebody who has been, I guess, you know, we, we might not be surprised to know that given the history of his magazine and of rockism and rock and roll in general, that he has these blind spots. But the fact that he doesn't, he hasn't mastered the language to pretend he doesn't have the blind spots was what was yeah. kind of staggering to me. I mean, it feels like, I'm sure both of you recognize this, like in every comedy we see now, like contemporary satirical comedy, there's something about, um, you know, people's ability to deploy these tropes of, you know, sort of wokeness or whatever to sort of like say the right things, even if they don't have the right motives, right? There's always that character who's sort of deploying, you know, wellness terms or something to sort of hide their actual prejudices. Jan Wenner is not even able to do that. Like he doesn't realize that he's digging his own grave with a giant, giant shovel in this interview. And so he keeps doubling down. And in particular, the word that struck me that he uses mm. probably four times in the printed version of the interview in various, uh, you know, as a verb, as a noun um, in the negative is articulate, yeah. right? Yeah. Which he doesn't even seem to recognize in 2023 is now just this shibboleth of, you know, um, of non-recognition of the other, right? And it just made me remember when We Were Kings came out about um, Muhammad Ali, among other things. And uh, I remember seeing it with my boyfriend at the time, who was of mixed race. And afterwards, we were talking about the movie and how good it was. And I used that word, you know, in like in as praise of, of Muhammad Ali, just basically saying I didn't realize that, you know, this great boxer was also so articulate about politics and he very gently but he kind of dressed me down for it like you probably don't realize this but that word has a long history and you know blah 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 he talked to me about you know that word and how how it is so often used to sort of express surprise you know that a person of color or in this case a woman could have something to say and I remember being embarrassed and a little defensive or whatever but I sort of took that lesson from him and that word has always stuck with me in that context as a word that people should be careful about using right um, and here is Jan Wenner, who is at a at a place in culture that is so much more, um, you know, visible and so much more at the intersection of all these questions about race and gender and creativity uh, than I was as a grad student in 1996. And he doesn't know that yet. That just really, really struck me, right? I mean, he keeps on saying, like, Joni Mitchell's not articulate enough. And, oh, Curtis Mayfield couldn't articulate this or that. So apparently the people who are in possession of this magical power of articulation all just happen to be <laughs> white dudes in the history of rock and roll. Well, that's the thing, though, that was really shocking to me was that he did know, I think. He did know. Like, he, he says, oh, you know, we could have put you know, a person of color, a woman in, you know, for, I think he says, for public relations reasons. So like, he knows he's done this. He He's not sort of after the thought, somebody's pointed it out to him. He must have rejected, I would say at least a hundred times, because even if you're Jan Wenner, your publishing company is going to say, uh, you know, this was not the first time that somebody pointed this out to him. But he, as he and you, to use a word he uses in the interview, entitled. He says at one point, so what? I'm entitled. And, he, you know, that's another word that he utilizes in many ways. He knows better. He just doesn't care. And, you know, mm. in some ways, if he wasn't Jan Wenner, it would be, I mean, again, not okay because it's misogynist and racist, but as we get older, we all kind of, you know, stick to our tastes. Our tastes become very, not necessarily like intensified. We don't change them. Um, and that's what's happened to him. But he's not Joe Schmo, uh, as we know, because mm. he's been, you know, he's twice had in-depth interviews in the New York Times over the course of two years. But 
He was a gatekeeper, the most perhaps the most important gatekeeper in music, and he doesn't give a shit. And he 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 knows, he recognizes, and he dismisses. That's the thing to me. It, it, it's exactly what you say, doubling down of saying, "I know this is out there, I really do, but I just don't care." That is just astonishing to me. I agree with you, June, that he knows. I'm not saying that he 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 doesn't know that he's yeah. gotten to this point in his life and his career without knowing that yeah. he's being a gatekeeper and shutting those people out, yeah. you know, not giving them a voice through Rolling Stone. I just I'm talking about his ass covering skills. Like I'm just amazed that he doesn't have some publicist mm. or somebody with a clipboard who's coaching him who says, like, don't say articulate, ixnay mm-hmm. on the articulate mm-hmm. yay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, just that he is so clumsy at even sort of pretending to speak the language of something more enlightened than he is. Yeah, I mean, it's just the ultimate OK Boomer moment, right? I mean, it it ought to be pointed out that in 1970, as someone did in a piece about this, that the feminist critic Ellen Willis called Rolling Stone viciously anti-woman. So the history here runs deep. It's not just Wenner's senescence speaking. Um, so uh, a number of years ago, I read my friend Joe Hagen's biography. Uh, it's very of Wenner. It's it's very 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 good. It made Wenner unhappy, which is one clue that it's uh, <laughs> a truth telling uh, biography. But um, when you look at the legacy through the lens of, of Hagen's superb book, it's that um, rock and roll before Rolling Stone and before the '60s was music quintessentially for teenage girls. They 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 comprised the dominant part of the buying public for it. Um, and in the course of the 1960s, uh, it got made over into music for teenage boys. And Rolling Stone played a critical role in that, in part by elevating to the status of rock gods these very people. I mean, virtually all of them, except for Springsteen, I think, and Bono originate in roughly that time frame. Um, the point here is that, and, and in doing so, it became... Um, gender politics being what they are, it went from frivolous to being serious music and enormously self-serious music. So if you really want to look at what the key contribution Jan Wenner made to the culture is, it's that general tone and attitude of incredible self-seriousness. So the basic attitude of mindless irreverence towards the establishment and mindless reverence to rock and roll really is what Wenner's legacy is. And this idea of a canon, this canonical you know, this canon of, of the best of the best of the self-serious rock and roll music is represented here by exactly these seven figures. Um, what I find most interesting is that, of course, his standard is totally circular. Many of these people, I would say Springsteen especially, learned to talk this way about rock music because of the way what they were doing rather unselfconsciously and often quite inarticulately, was being endlessly reflected back to them by these adulating and in some instances outright cynical journalists, most of whom wrote for Rolling Stone or one of the, you know, like uh, magazines. I really love Bruce Springsteen. I've loved him for 40 plus years now, more. Um, I, I will go to my grave with very mixed feelings about him. I have the embarrassment you feel for something that you liked a little too much when you were 12 <laughs> or 13 years old. But I also, in the end of the day, really revere in totality what he did. Bruce was an astonishingly inarticulate um, advocate for his own music up until... Rolling Stone, and particularly a writer at Rolling Stone named Dave Marsh, got a hold of him and began writing biographies about him and hagiographies. And I watched in real time as what Marsh was saying about him at Rolling Stone um, got incorporated into Bruce's self-understanding as an artist. 
as Springsteen became the quote unquote articulate person that he is today, which he is about his own music and its significance. The point is, it was the initial act of exclusion by which these, you know, white, young white male adulators saw themselves in Pete Townsend, Jerry Garcia, Bob Dylan, uh, the Beatles, on the Rolling Stones, and on and on, and didn't see a piece of themselves in Curtis Mayfield, Marvin Gaye, Joni Mitchell, on and on down the line. And so who's in the room initially changes how everyone thinks and speaks. Um, Diversity is a social good in and of itself, but it's also a seed that flowers and flowers and flowers. And so there's something deformed at the level of the seed here going back to the early 60s. Yeah. I mean, that's absolutely right. And I I just, I I know that everybody who's read this interview, everyone who's heard this segment will know this, but I think it just bears saying that the attitude that when a, you know, just, doesn't seem to have any compunctions about revealing, um, is exactly the same as the attitude that people will say, you know, say, well, yeah, I know that, uh, you know, whatever it is, is all white and all male. But, well, you know, I, I don't want to just bring someone in. You know, I don't want to, you know, as if if you expand beyond this very narrow uh, group that you're going to dilute and you're going to worsen and, and things are going to go downhill. I mean, it's such a terrible attitude. And all it means is I just have a really limited view of life. I have a really limited friend circle. I have a really limited Rolodex. I don't read people who aren't like me. I don't like people who aren't like me. Like, that's all that is. And for someone like Jan Wenner, it shouldn't come as a surprise. He's a guy who likes to show his ass and has done it over and over and over again. And it's why we still, you know, interview him, I guess. Uh, but it's it's depressing, but it's also in a way, I think, um, it's a good reminder. It's a good, like, these aren't conspiracy theories. This is a very widely held view and it's good to just have it put out there. Yeah, it's true. That's why it's it's a really good thing that David Marchese pressed him yes. to the extent that he did, because yeah. there were a million outs, right? I mean, there yeah. were, that was another funny thing watching it. There were so many moments that he could have basically sort of shrugged and said, what are you going to do? I'm of my generation, you know, call me a misogynist, but, you know, this these are my benchmarks and that's all I have to say, right? But yeah. because he had to try to find some greater reason and, and have recourse to this abstract idea of articulateness and, and be you know, a philosopher himself, right? yes. yes. Uh, that's where he he dug his own grave. So um, congrats to David Marquez on just giving those extra little pokes that made him really, truly just get out the flag and start flying it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, the interview itself is called Jan Wenner Defends His Legacy in His Generations. Uh, I'm glad, Dana, you shouted out to the, you know, really the guy who conducted it brilliantly, David Marchese. Uh, it's in the New York Times, September 15th. Obviously, you'll just find it online. But ch- check it out. When This is one of those ones we, you know, we really would dig getting an email from you and getting your reaction to this, uh, if you have one. All right, moving on. Okay, well, Shock Doctrine, No Logo. These are books that try to anatomize and understand contemporary capitalism and how it pervades, but also shapes us, makes us who we are. They're very suspicious about how we self-commodify, how we shape a self to the dictates of the market. Their author, Naomi Klein, has found herself in an unusual position. Her own brand, her own brand self, as she puts it, her public self, 
is being violated, misunderstood, or arguably degraded by a simple enough confusion between her, Naomi Klein, and another writer, Naomi Wolf. Naomi Wolf is roughly her age and demographic profile. Uh, of course, they share a first name. <laughs> Wolf is the author of The Beauty Myth, a highly regarded feminist uh, book from the early 90s. But over the past decade, she's become a public conspiracist and something of a public punchline. So the piece in Vanity Fair was titled The Other Naomi uh, by Naomi Klein. Uh, it's in the August 15th Vanity Fair. Um, her new book is called Doppelganger, A Trip into the Mirror World. We've read an uh, uh, extensive excerpt from it plus a ton of other uh, related material, including interviews with Klein. June, let me let me turn to you first. This is, um, God, I mean, how to even describe it, right? Like if you're allowed to say the word mindfuck without, <laughs> um, you know, embarrassing yourself or others, uh, it really is kind of a weird mindfuck. I mean, she's repeatedly, she's been mistaken in my own mind same, over and over same. and over again. Yeah. And um, I think what she's done is actually quite deft, which is she's taken this, weird, idiosyncratic, almost urban, legendish fact of her life. And she spun out, I think, a rather convincing theory about self and other in the age of um, the internet. What do you make of what we read in this situation? You know, I went through a similar journey, Steve. At first I thought, okay, you know, I've made that mistake. I guess she's going to, she's written a book about that. And it appears from this long excerpt and from the interviews that, no, that is the jumping off point, as you might say. Yeah that uh, this happened, this made her, you know, really dig deep into this phenomenon. And in even reading, uh, you know, spending an hour or so reading this material, I went on my own similar journey. And it really kind of, it it sent me honestly into a little bit of a, you know, string and, and board in the back of the closet kind of scenario. I mean, I've actually had similar experiences. Um, I worked at Off Our Backs, which is often confused with On Our Backs, which is a pretty different publication, and yet has some similarities. Even Slate is often, even now, sometimes confused with Salon. I mean, you would think that would only happen in 1998, but only a couple of years ago, I got a card, uh, you know, a membership card from an organization I'm a member of, and it said June Thomas, and then it said Salon. And the person knew where I worked, but they must have had one of those doppelganger moments. So this happens. But I think that's only the start of it. Like that that's just where you think, oh, okay, this is an easy, an easy step. But I, as soon as I thought about it a bit more, it made me realize how when things are close to you, that's when mm-hmm. it gets really hard to dismiss them. Um, so, for example, I'm now here in Britain. I find it very destabilizing that people here in Britain, at least more than in the US, there are people who are very much like me. They might look like me. I don't know. But they I would say they're progressive. They're maybe even radical and they're transphobic. And that really freaks me out because it's much easier to say, oh, those people, you know, those Republicans, those right wingers. When you can't just dismiss people that way, it's much harder to understand why people have a very different view of humanity. It's not about politics necessarily. They might even dismiss a whole, you know, part of humanity that, you know, are very beloved to you. And that's really destabilizing. And that really made me think that Klein was really onto something and and something really quite profound. Mm. When I first heard about this, 
concept mm-hmm. of a book, you know, that one Naomi wrote about the experience of being mistaken for another Naomi writer. I just, it sounded like a joke, like a punchline, like that's a really funny idea, but how could you sustain that for an entire book? And what seems quite interesting about the project is that she herself wrote the book beginning with that same sense of unsureness about whether, you know, this was a, a larger phenomenon than just a, a personal anecdote. And it just seems like what she's done with it is quite fascinating in that she's turned it into a reflection on uncanny doubling in our moment, you know, in this 21st century political moment. So she talks about, for example, red pilling, which is essentially the experience that the other Naomi, Naomi Wolf, has gone through in the past few years. Uh, Namely, after, and I don't know if you guys remember this event, but after Naomi Wolf, the other Naomi, wrote an entire book about a sort of historical (laughs) um, series of events That was based on her PhD thesis. Ah, I didn't realize that. Well, maybe you know the story better than me, June. So tell me, tell us how this happened. Her book was essentially debunked in real time during an interview in which the journalist interviewing her pointed out that a key phrase that she was basing her entire argument on had been misunderstood. I don't think any of the executions you've identified here actually happened. Well, that's a really important thing to investigate. What is your... What is your understanding of well, what death recorded means? Death recorded. Her book had to be withdrawn by the publisher, as Naomi Wolf's did, because of this flaw in her research. Did I get that right, June? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly the story. And Naomi Klein traces in her book uh, the way in which, I mean, I, I, I think it's sort of her thesis, but it seems like it makes sense that the shame of that experience, which she does empathize with, and it's hard not to as a writer, even if you really disagree with you know the person who wrote that book, um, that that experience of being publicly shamed and having her book withdrawn sent her down this kind of spiral of, you know, being somebody who was suddenly aligning with strange right-wing theorists and appearing on Steve Bannon's podcast and, you know, becoming somebody who went from a conspiracy theorist in a sane way <laughs> to a conspiracy theorist in a less sane way. So it sounds like what Naomi Klein, now we're back to our author, Naomi, what Naomi Klein's book is trying to do is look at these moments where, you know, where there's a kind of a mirror relationship with someone whose politics or worldview might be wildly different than yours, but, you know, who at a certain point just diverged from something like where you are. And that's mm. all sounds very abstract, but I think what seems like the powerful part of this book is that she turns that into an actual argument. Um, and that makes me really want to read it. Yeah, me too. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm not just impressed, I'm blown away by the excerpt that I read, and I'm now fully intend to read the whole book. Um, a number of things. One is that it's a closeness or affinity, a nearness that produces the dissonance. And if they were more distant figures from one another, um, you know, if they were very unlike, the dissonance wouldn't happen. The confusion probably wouldn't happen, but if it did, it would be relatively harm- harmless. I mean, they both write about a world gone horribly wrong to the advantage of a tiny elite. So there, there's like a yin and yang. There's like that dram of paranoia in uh, Naomi Klein's work, which I admire. I actually think she was one of the very first most interesting and provocative theorists of what became widely known as neoliberalism with shock doctrine. She was very early to that. And, uh, and we live in a world in which that kind of paranoia is justified, right? The sort of 70s, classic 1970s movie now is our reality, which is it, you can't possibly assimilate into your own understanding given your distance from power and the totality of how it pervades our own lives, who exactly is in charge, 
uh, and exactly how they're achieving their ends. But it, it's no longer possible to be naive or take a kind of faux optimistic response to it and say, well, nobody is, or plus ça change, it was always like this. Something is characteristically different. And um, <laughs> the difference is, you know, one of them has kind of completed the horseshoe movement of politics. She's gone so far left that she's now right. Um, and she's exited the world of, of, of evidence giving in some important respect. Um, and, and the fact that Naomi Klein is candid about why that's productive of a certain kind of shame and then very introspective about what the implications of that shame are for her as someone who has really tried to understand how self-branding is a degradation of human self-understanding and self-presentation because she admits like her, you know, her brand is being degraded here in some sense. And yet she spent so much of her life, as, as she says, as a pedagogue, creating a dialogue with much younger students about what the line is between you and brand you. And I'll just say very quickly, June, what I find powerful about that. There, it's not as though the specter of Warhol, which I do think hovers over everything that's come since roughly the 70s or early 80s, isn't a real one, Right. And that specter says to us, it sort of whispers in our ear, there is no difference between you and brand you. And that's, if you're someone built like me, that, that's a devilish voice that you have to fight off and ignore. Again, for that same doppel reason, that same double mm-hmm. reason. It's mm-hmm. not because I just find it repulsive and, and, and unthinkable and, and a non-starter. And I clearly have a solid enough sense of self that it, that it makes no inroads inside me. But because I'm vulnerable to it, right? Like, like I, I understand the appeal of becoming what you are in the eyes of public others or wanting very badly to give in to that um, desire to, to have an inflated self in the estimation of others. And, and so I, I, it's not and, – and, and I'll just conclude by saying most admirably this isn't a book or an argument that Naomi Klein has made with answers. It's, it's really just a series of endlessly fertile and interestingly, you know, like, like flashes of understanding for being so indeterminate and so open about her own ambivalences. Yeah. Yeah, to me, this, what I've read so far is a very compelling argument about really looking closer, you know, really looking in the mirror uh, and and, and instead of making assumptions about uh, what, what what a person might stand for because you think you know, uh, you know, what Naomi Klein would say or you give Naomi Klein a little and then you realize, oh, actually, that was Naomi Wolf. Because and that may be sounding like a weird thing to say, but Naomi Wolf specifically over the course of her career, she was given the benefit of the doubt and then. Later, as you know, she kind of moved over to the questionable side of things. People look back, like Rebecca Onion did a really interesting piece where she reread uh, the beauty myth now, or it was maybe two years ago, and sort of said, "Oh yeah, you know that was really not accurate. That was really a bit uh, of a that was a bit fast and loose with something, you know." And that actually, we 
we make assumptions about what groups people fall into and we, you know, just kind of, we forgive them more than we really should. We should not just assume, oh, that person is on the other side, therefore I'm going to hold them to the fire. This person's on my team. I'm going to, you know, give them a little leeway. To me, that's the really exciting part of this is just saying, no, really, Luke, hold everybody to the same standards and, uh, you know, don't let your doppelganger uh, take over your name, you know? To that end, although it may be undermining what June just said about keeping an open mind, can we end on the the wonderful um, quatrain <laughs> that that the great tw- the tweeter Mark <laughs> yes, Popham wrote please. to tell the two yes. Naomi's apart? This has been quoted in a lot of stories about this new book, and I think uh, Naomi Klein quotes it herself at one point. But this comes from Mark Popham, who's one of my favorite people to follow on Twitter. Very, very funny writer. <laughs> the entire tweet reads as follows, keeping track of things with the following rhyme. If the Naomi be Klein, you're doing just fine. If the Naomi be Wolf, oh, buddy, oof. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we don't mean to laugh, and, and yet we do. All right. So the piece in Vanity Fair was titled The Other Naomi uh, by Naomi Klein. Uh, it's in the August 15th Vanity Fair. That is eminently worth checking out, obviously. But um, once you read it, like me, I think, and like all of us, it sounds like you'll be more than a little tempted to buy and read the whole thing. If you have done so or have any feelings about this like rather pregnant subject, we'd love to hear from you. All right, let's move on. All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What do you have? Steve, I've been waiting to endorse this for a few weeks, but I wanted to make sure that I had the right one and uh, and that I had seen it all the way through. But this has become a, a sort of a referential text in our house. And, uh, and the minute I heard about it, I knew it was something I wanted to share as an endorsement. So when you live with an acting nerd like I do, you often hear in the background as you're making dinner things like table reads where casts get together and, you know, do the first read through of a script before they start filming something. My daughter's very into table reads, among other kind of... Um, acting ephemera that she finds online. And in particular, right now, she's doing a complete rewatch of, of Better Call Saul, which is another touchstone text in our household. And uh, and she really, really loved this particular table read, which is the table read for um, season two, episode one of Better Call Saul. So it's 40 minutes long. It's the entire script of the show. And you see the whole cast and, you know, some major members of the production team sitting around reading through. And in particular, she loves this particular reading because Ray Seahorn, who plays Kim on the show, um, the the female lead of Better Call Saul, is the only one who's off book already. <laughs> like, that's oh. how overprepared she is. <laughs> and she's amazing. She also has gone a lot farther. It's really clear toward finding her character and her, you know, her line readings for this episode than anybody else on the cast, which doesn't mean, of course, that they all didn't get there in the end, right? Every actor has their own method. But if you really want to see, like, the Lisa Simpson side of Ray Seahorn, <laughs> <laughs> she is so fantastic and never even glances at her lines during this entire 40-minute table read. And if you know the show and you know the episode, it's really fun to to see it come just from the start to go from the page to, to life. There's a couple other um, Better Call Saul table reads on YouTube as well. But this particular one that I'm recommending is Season 2, Episode 1. The title of the episode is Switch. We'll put a link to it on our show page. I had no idea that such things were available on YouTube or anywhere else. That's amazing. 
I mean, it's sort of catch as catch can. Like, I think there's only three or four total ones for Better Call Saul. And there's a couple Breaking Bad ones, too. And I don't know why some are recorded yeah. and some aren't. Or, you know, is it if it's part of a promotional thing or obviously they had to give permission for it to go yeah. up on YouTube. So, yeah, it's very unsystematic. But if you go down enough rabbit holes, you can find quite a few table reads for major shows online. Oh my goodness. That's amazing. And then as a young, you know, actor in training, you know, um, to compare you know, this inchoate with the final is always, it's just always enlightening regardless of what the medium is. That's that's amazing. That's really cool. Yeah, I mean, I recommend in general, if that sounds intriguing to you, go after, you know, table reads for things. It's surprising how often you can find, but it is still fairly unusual to find an entire one, you know, not a little clip that was that was filmed for a backstage documentary or something, but, you know, just a stationary camera filming the entire table read. And that's what this is. Wow. Yeah, yeah, very cool. June, what uh, would you bring us? So of late, I have been reading reviews of Walter Isaacson's biography of Elon Musk. It's a book that I don't want to read, but I have been enjoying the interpretations of how you spend time with someone like Elon Musk and either become effectively ensorcelled by them or resist them or, you know, just kind of deal with your feelings for people who, let's just say, are not universally beloved, uh, maybe sometimes quite reviled. And I just always have had a soft spot for biographies of unpleasant people. And I just want to recommend one in specifically that uh, I recently read uh, it's by a friend of Slate, Mark O'Connell, A Thread of Violence, A Story of Truth, Invention and Murder. And it's about Malcolm MacArthur, who was a Dublin dilettante who killed two people, just, I mean, to, to use a phrase, in cold blood, um, effectively to avoid getting a job, really. Um, he had no plan. It was just completely, you know, casual. And the book is just beautifully written. O'Connell is an amazing writer. And it's a very kind of clear-eyed look at the nature of the exploitation at the heart of telling other people's stories. Uh, I mean, for example, at one point, O'Connell admits that effectively he's also trying now and has certainly in the past done things, not murder, to avoid getting a job. Um, it, it's it's again. I, I don't really know how to explain it without just saying take a chance on this book. It's fantastic. I also want to recommend the audiobook. O'Connell reads it. He and I think hearing it in uh, a particular Dublin accent does lend an element uh, to the experience. I also then went out and bought the book, the hardback, as soon as I finished because I just like this is a book I want to refer to. So. A Thread of Violence, A Story of Truth, Invention and Murder by Mark O'Connell. Okay, June, that's uncanny because the music of Irish speech is uh, central to my endorsement this week as well. I am dying to know, have you listened to um, the podcast West Cork? Yes, I listened to it. Um, it's going to sound uh, awful, but some years ago. Yeah, no, it's it's not new, but for some reason, I think it, in part it was paywalled by Audible when it first came yes, out. Yes, that's maybe. right, that's right. Yes, and it was and really hard to find on the Audible app. Yeah, 
Exactly. And now it's just widely available. I'm listening to it on Spotify. It appears to be on like all the platforms now. Um, the one thing I will say very quickly first is it's important to find the right one. There are a lot of podcasts about A, this particular true crime case, uh, and a lot of podcasts just about West Cork, a particularly, let's just say, a distinctive part of Ireland. This one um, is about the murder of a young French woman who has a second home in this very beautiful, rural, remote part of uh, Ireland. And um, it involves all kinds of deep dive interviews 20 years after the murder with the various people who lived in the village, the various people who came in as um, city people to sort of cultivate it as a a home away from home, uh, and centrally with the suspect, the prime suspect, still the prime suspect in that murder, who over the course of many episodes, I haven't finished it yet, um, is revealed, regardless of whether he did it or not, is revealed to be a kind of narcissistic monster and has the personality type of someone who uh, meeting with either sexual rejection or um, some hint that maybe he wanted to collaborate with her, she was a film producer of rejection of any kind, might fly into a rage um, and do something awful. But but it's it's this up-close portrait of a person who's just convinced that he's a different person than he really is. And, and in order to maintain that illusion to himself, you know, even if he didn't cr- commit this horrendous crime, the contortions and the oddities and the circumlocutions and the defensiveness necessary to sustain it. So as a portrait of a community, it's, in, it's, it's remarkable, a small rural community um, where everybody knows everyone else's business and, and in which a, 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 a wretched you know, tragedy unfolds and as a portrait of this person up close. And again, like, I mean, I hate to, it is a compliment. I hope it's not a ridiculous stereotype, but I mean, my God, it is something about like the the Ireland of Joyce and Yates and Anne Enright and on and on and on and on. I mean, you, you, there is just a, a music, uh, these people do not know how to speak in prose. I mean, I, I, I really don't mean to be like, condes- I hope that doesn't sound condescending. It's really meant um, with admiration. There's like a, a, like thought, speech, and music go together. It seems like in the, in this particular disposition that the, the, the beauty of the descriptions and the intimacy of the descriptions of these third parties to this horrible event are just extraordinary to listen to. It's called West Cork. You can find it anywhere. Um, Uh, now on all the major platforms. Check it out. June, thank you so much for coming in and, uh, and talking to us. That was really, really fun. Thank you so much for inviting me. It is always a pleasure. Come back soon. And Dana, always a pleasure. I thought this was a really fun show. Yes, it was so nice to have June, original, yeah. ultimate fop of the program back again. <laughs> There it is, exactly, uh. the outpop. Um, you'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest, and you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our introductory music is by the composer Nicholas Bertel. Our producer is Cameron Drews. Our production assistant is Kat Hong. For June Thomas and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. We'll be right back.